Well, now, now you've triggered something else. <laughs> you've triggered a moment when I was, I don't know, very young, when my mum's friend, Jeanette Short, came to stay, and she was a teacher in India, and she brought a Braille book, and she left it with me, and I used to, I can remember sitting and, and feeling this Braille book. And that was the beginning, I think, of me wanting to change the world. And there's still something about me that wants to change the world. And now what I want to do is facilitate other people to change the world. <laughs> Although I think I still probably want to change it myself as well. I think there's something about making the world a better place and having an impact and, and doing something that has significance where you can actually tangibly say, this is true now and it wasn't true before. And, and that started when I was a teacher in Kenya, where actually, if I tell the story of my time as a teacher in Kenya, you'd say actually that was changing the world. And I would say, no, it wasn't actually, it was changing me. <laughs> and the world changing stuff has actually happened accidentally in different places now in a way that it hadn't happened before. So when Simplifying Coaching was published, that was just me saying, I think we're making it all too complicated, right? And then I suddenly start getting messages every day from people all over the world going, this has changed my life. <laughs> and I want to go, okay, that's, but that wasn't the plan when I wrote the book. When you've been on a course that's cost you a lot of money and when everybody's told you that coaching's very special, you come out of the thing really worshipping this, this idol that is coaching. Well, I'm sorry, it's not that special. It really isn't. It is. It's amazing and it's life-changing and it's all those things, but it's not that special. And I think... This feeling of how special it is and how precious it is is part of the thing that breeds imposter syndrome. It's just a conversation. It's just a conversation that's between two people about one of us. So it's a kind of odd kind of conversation. But it is actually quite normal. So it made me think about my life in the coaching world where I've always felt a little bit on the edge because because what I think about it is a bit radically different and I'm singing a different song about coaching. And having other people go, you're right, has been quite a surprise to me. You know, when you think you're right, it's nice when people go, I agree with you, but it's also a bit surprising that you suddenly then become a bit more mainstream than you thought you were going to be. I can't, what was the question you asked that <laughs> took me away down there? Belonging. So part of me really, really wants to belong and part of me really, really doesn't want to belong. And actually, I think that's part of the reason. Actually, now I'm saying that to you.
I think there's a deep desire in me that I actually do want to belong everywhere and nowhere. You're a good coach, aren't you, Gary? <laughs> My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Today, it's my great privilege to welcome Master Coach Claire Pedrick to the podcast. We've known each other for about a year. I've been part of one of her coaching supervision groups, and she's been quite pivotal in helping me to think differently about coaching and to evolve my own practice. Today, I'm looking forward to delving into what makes her tick and what brings her joy. In preparation for this conversation, I asked Claire to describe herself. And in her answer, you get something of her essence. She said, I could say that I am a human who facilitates other people's thinking, a business owner, a mother, a friend, a volunteer, a master coach with over 13,000 hours of coaching experience, the author of Simplifying Coaching and the host of the Coaching In podcast. All of these are true and each will impact how we start a conversation. With some definitions, you might assign me power, which I do not deserve. She also says, every so often I go on a very long walk. In 2022, it was 600 kilometers on the Camino in Spain. Well, that's what Claire says about Claire. What I'm going to say about Claire is that she epitomizes wisdom through simplicity and is also humble and deeply generous with her time and insight. And she was awarded the 2022 Outstanding Contribution to Coaching Award from Henley Business School. Her upcoming book, co-authored with another master coach, Lucia Baldelli, is called The Human Behind the Coach, How Great Coaches Transform Themselves First. There is much about Claire I don't know, and I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to this conversation learning more about her journey, the lessons learned along the way, and of course, her unlocked moments of remarkable clarity. Claire Pedrick, this is going to be fun. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. It's going to be really fun, Gary. Thank you for having me. And those lovely words. Thank you. But I hate, I hate that bit. <laughs> We're through it. We're through it. It's done. It's done. Okay. So I'm going to Let's start, be human. I'm going to start with the question that you taught me. Where do we need to start in this conversation? Well, I think a fun place to start would be what I've just realised in the last 10 seconds was an unlock moment, which was the day that I was lying in bed in my mum and dad's spare room. My kids were probably, well, probably under three. They'd gone to play with mum and grandpa and read books and I was having my <laughs> stressed... <laughs> stressed young mother moment. My mum used to collect good housekeeping magazines and she used to leave them by the spare bed and I used to not get up until I'd read them all. So I was reading one and there was an article about coaching. And I read it and I thought, 
Finally, 10 years after I've had this job called Information and Counselling, I actually know what I do. There's an article here about my job. So that was a real unlock moment because up to then I was trying to describe what I did in a very strange way because nobody could really understand. And, and to ask a slightly impolite question, how long ago was that that you have this vivid recollection of reading the good housekeeping magazines and finding that article? Uh, it was probably 25 years ago or more. And there's something characteristic I, I'm finding about Unlock Moments, which is how far back people, people look and they've got this very vivid picture in their mind of being in this, in this place, in this space, uh, and, and remembering those moments. And I, I guess in my exploration of, of, of the topic, I'm, I'm interested in what makes something so sticky in your mind that 25 years later it's, it's that vivid. Do you remember at the time, did it feel like a big moment to you at that time or more so over time? I think it did. And I think more so over time. When you keep attributing something back to the same moment, it, it, it turns the volume up on it, doesn't it? Um, I can just remember an enormous sense of relief that I wasn't making it up this thing that I did that I'd never met anyone else who did the thing I did. And when I tried to describe it to people, they didn't understand it. And when I worked with people using coaching, which I now know what it was, they said how useful it was, but they couldn't describe what we'd done either. So, so it was a really, it was a really important moment. And the other day I was thinking about it and thinking it's funny, isn't it? Because you never kept that magazine. Because I'm not a keeper of things really, but, but I kind of wish I had. And framed it. Yeah. Interesting. And talk to me about what you, the context, what, what had you been doing that 10 years up to then that you later discovered was coaching? So I'd been Working with people, many young people, others students, but other lots of kinds of people, um, helping them work out how to work in international development. And so the job was called information and counselling. So half of it was having a lot of lever arch files with constantly updated information about plumbers needed in Zimbabwe and English teachers needed in Russia and whatever, whatever. And the other half was helping people think through what did they really want to do and, and how were they going to find that? And that's coaching. And now we know what coaching is, but in those days, counselling, which was the closest that the organisation who recruited me could get to it, didn't really do it because there was, it wasn't counselling, but it was dialoguing. And what was different between the conversations you were having and giving people information or advice from your lever arch file? What made it coaching? So the coaching bit was the bit that we would do to start with, which was to work out whatever was it that they wanted to do and what were the beautiful and wonderful things that they brought to this moment. And then, and then we'd go to the lever arch files, which was now you know that actually this is, 
this is something deep inside you that wants to do whatever. Let's see who's got opportunities that fit that. And I used to produce a monthly publication that was, it wasn't Gestetnered, it was actually photocopied. <laughs> I think it was printed actually, called Opportunities Abroad, which was, well, a jobs list really of, of what was available for people to do. And what did you love about the conversation? Was it, was it more than the outcomes, the people finding jobs and opportunities? Was it more than that that you loved? Yeah, I loved, do you know, I, I can see my office now in my, as we're talking, I can see the office in Brixton in my head. I can see all sorts of things. Anyway, I need to focus on the conversation with you. So, so what I loved about it was meeting lots of different people and, and helping them see things differently and helping them open up possibilities. And many of the people who came were having their possibilities narrowed down by others who were going, you can't possibly, you shouldn't, you mustn't. And I think I was going, well, what if you did? <laughs> so it was an opening up thing, and that was a lovely thing to do. And you hadn't had training specifically in doing that. That was something that came naturally to you. Uh, I kind of worked it out on the way. But what's really interesting is that we still do something we call a career makeover, and it's pretty much what I did then, which is, so, you know, what are your gifts and skills and what can you do and what do you love and all those great things. So, so on one level, that little bit of my work hasn't changed at all. And do you remember particular people that you worked with where you remember having impacts and feeling fulfilled in what you were doing. Yeah, and some of them you meet again in a completely different life and you think, oh, yeah, we knew each other then, didn't we? Um, these questions, <laughs> it's a good job you can't see inside my head, but these questions are making faces come up. You know, I can, I can, I can see people and remember people and it's extraordinary, isn't it? The power of memory. It's interesting because, so I started this podcast a little over a year ago as a conversation with people I knew, some people I've worked with in coaching, um, to explore kind of these remarkable moments of clarity that I'd noticed come up in, in, in coaching conversations. And I wanted to know more about whether people had experienced that before and so on and so forth. The journey I've been on over the course of the last year and a bit with the Unlock Moment has been to realize that there's something much bigger here, I think. And that thing that you described, um, I was on, I was at an event last week or the week before uh, and on stage, which was a bit crazy, talking about the unlocked moment with the podcast cover behind me on the screen. And I was in a conversation with somebody that um, I'd only just met. And we were doing a little demonstration of kind of this conversation. And I said, you know, where do we need to start in your story in order to understand the person you are today and you know, what you do? And she told a story about being five years old. Um, and she said, literally in this conversation, I've connected something really deep that I've never connected before about why I do what I do. And I think there is something about um, the unlocked moment being a bit of a, a lens on 
not just purpose, but like your deepest underlying drives of why you do what you do? Well, now, now you've triggered something else. <laughs> you've triggered a moment when I was, I don't know, very young, when my mum's friend, Jeanette Short, came to stay and she was a teacher in India and she brought a Braille book and she left it with me and I used to, I can remember sitting and, and feeling this Braille book and that was the beginning, I think, of me wanting to change the world. And there's still something about me that wants to change the world. And now what I want to do is facilitate other people to change the world. <laughs> Although I think I still probably want to change it myself as well. That's really interesting. One of the things I was really looking forward about this conversation is that I feel like we know each other quite well. And at the same time, we don't know each other very well at all because we've never had this kind of conversation. And deliberately, we, we haven't had a conversation before this conversation to talk about what we would talk about. Um, and I don't know whether I would have picked you as somebody who would say, I want to change the world. So now I'm interested in that. So, so what do you want to change? I think there's something about making a difference. And, you know, the people who used to come to me when I was doing that job, they, they used to say, I want to make a difference and I want to make a difference. And one of the questions I used to ask them is, what kind of a difference do you want to make? Which I still think is quite a good question, actually. And then my mum gave me, when, when the kids were young, about the time that I read that magazine article, my mum gave me a postcard, which we had in our kitchen for years and years and years, and it said, I wanted to go out and change the world, but I couldn't find a babysitter. <laughs> so I'm now the mother to two young adults who are doing their bit in changing the world. I think there's something about making the world a better place and having an impact and, and yeah, and doing something that has significance where you can actually tangibly say, this is true now and it wasn't true before. And, and that started when I was a teacher in Kenya, where actually, if I tell the story of my time as a teacher in Kenya, you'd say, actually, that was changing the world. And I would say, no, it wasn't actually, it was changing me. <laughs> and and the, the world changing stuff has actually happened accidentally in different places now in a way that it hadn't happened before. So when Simplifying Coaching was published, that was just me saying, I think we're making it all too complicated, right? And then I suddenly start getting messages every day from people all over the world going, this has changed my life. <laughs> and I want to go, okay, that's, but that wasn't the plan when I wrote the book. But then, so that is, I would say, a real world changing thing that happened by accident but I think when we come up with a plan to intentionally change the world we probably usually don't and I'm making a connection with what you just said about in Kenya I wasn't changing the world I was changing me and we will come on and talk about the human behind the coach but the subtitle of your book is how great coaches transform themselves first yes I don't like that the editor said it was going to sell it so I'm a Christian and I actually don't believe that we can tr transform ourselves. I think we can to a certain extent but, extent, but I think we're also, we are transformed. 
and we're transformed by others, by the divine, by the world, by experience, by all sorts of by all sorts of other things. That's such that's a, such a deep question, Gary. Because all along I've said to her, I don't like the subtitle. And she said, you can address it in the introduction. And three or four weeks ago, when we were finishing the manuscript, I thought, right, what are we going to say in the introduction? And I, I, I didn't say anything to Lucia because I actually felt that we didn't need to do it because I think that the way we've written the book makes it clear that it's not all in our gift anyway. There's something about intentionality. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things we have said in the book is that, is that, is that the transformation that happens to us that makes us better coaches is often when we fall over and, and things don't go well. Those are part of, that's, that's actually a much more significant part of the transformation, the inner transformation that makes for better coaches. So when things go wrong and we can't control it and we realise that actually being in control isn't always the thing that we have control of, that makes us a better coach. When we have to tolerate difficult family stuff and there's lots of not knowing and you desperately want to know and you can't, that makes us a better coach. And I like that. It's just life. Living life makes us a better coach. Um, not perfection. That doesn't make us a better coach at all. And what's really resonant for me in, in your story in coaching is this idea that the first 10 years that you were coaching didn't even have a name let alone training and accreditation and all of those kind of things and awards and everything else that goes, goes, goes with modern coaching. And then obviously over, over the years since then, you've become trained and highly accredited and, and, and everything else. Do you think that the fact that you had a significant part of your, your, your life in coaching before there was any of that sort of additional stuff, is, is that helpful to you in kind of really setting coaching in its real true space? Well, it made me find my way. Um, and actually learning for yourself is, so learning from others is useful, but learning from your own experience is also useful. And I learned different things from different people. You know, I learned a huge amount about humanity from my first line manager, my second line manager, my first line manager in the UK. Um, and there's a story in Simplifying Coaching about, about uh, the power is like an egg hand that he had on his desk. And three years ago, two years ago, he sent me the thing because he said, it's time that this, this carving has a new, a new home and a new place to be. And, you know, that was, an, that, that was another lesson for me, a life lesson about passing on something. And you can't learn that on a course. I felt he, like he was passing the baton. On this podcast, I've had a lot of um, coaches from Marshall Goldsmith's group in, in the US. And the whole setup of 
Marshall Goldsmith's group is about paying it forward. And he's spending time with a group of people for free. And the only expectation is that they, when they're at his stage in their own careers, that they would do the same. Um, and I think that's a really, really powerful message, actually. Um, it's interesting in coaching because so many people now are training and going through courses and becoming accredited, which is averagely, I think, a very good thing that there's more coaching and more coaching capability. Um, but I also notice a lot of people who come through a formal coaching journey come through to be trained coaches with quite a lot of imposter syndrome because they've, they've learned a method and they come to the end of their training and I guess like when you've done your driving test, you know, you, you are qualified, but you're still not a very good driver. Um, and the, there's a kind of balance between I've got, I understand the, the frameworks and the psychology and, you know, the, the ethics and all that good, which is important to know and it's important to practice well. But then, but how do you also connect with just being yourself and, and letting go of the rules a little bit? Yeah, and I think that when you've, um, I just had another unlock moment memory in my head, by the way, just in case you're interested. But um, when you've been on a course that's cost you a lot of money, and when everybody's told you that coaching's very special, you come out of the thing really worshipping this, this idol that is coaching. Well, I'm sorry, it's not that special. It really isn't. It is. It's amazing and it's life-changing and it's all those things, but it's not that special. And I think, I think this feeling of how special it is and how precious it is is part of the thing that breeds imposter syndrome. It's just a conversation. It's just a conversation that's between two people about one of us. So it's a kind of odd kind of conversation, but, but it is actually quite normal. But I mean, I, 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 I almost put on my LinkedIn profile that my speciality is, is, is working with coaches who've completely lost confidence and don't think they know how to do anything <laughs> and, and who've been completely overwhelmed through their training journey by, by so much complexity and you need to know this and you need to remember this and you need to do this and then you also need to do this three times, otherwise you won't pass the assessment. It's bonkers. Sorry, that was a bit direct. What was your unlock moment that you had halfway through? <laughs> so one of my values is generosity. And uh, I remember it was when you talked about paying it forward. So we used to give people copies. We used to give people who came to our home copies of pay it, the Pay It Forward film so that they could understand why we did what we do. But my pay it forward journey started when I was in Kenya and I got typhoid and ended up living with a family, uh, a European family in Nairobi for six weeks. And they would take me to the doctor and I, they, they would look after me and they paid for everything. I didn't pay for anything. And when I left Kenya, I'm still friends with them now, but when I left Kenya, I said, I can never repay you for the kindness that you gave to me when I was sick. And they said, don't repay us, pay it forward, pass it on. So we've always had people staying in our house, feeding people we don't know, 
hospitality has been really important. And that, I think, also, I hope, shows up in the supervision groups and the other groups that I run because, yeah, being welcoming is a really important value for me, but it comes from that moment when those people went, I don't care how sick you are, I'm going to look after you and I don't want anything back. It's really powerful. What do you learn about conversations when you're on a very long walk? Um, well, it depends which very long walk you're asking me about, Gary. Which one would you like to talk about? So if I talk about the um, fundraising walks for the Motor Neurone Disease Association, that started out as me and a friend on a 13.6-mile walk, and then it ended up with... <laughs> Over the course of a year, 300 people came on this walk with us and we raised a fortune. It was great fun. And again, that we didn't set out to do that. We didn't mean to do that. It sort of happened. But one of my one day you might write this book titles is Everyone Has a Story. So on that walk, what I learned was that if you walk with people for five hours, which is what we did, and you've never met them before and you start talking, is that at some point they're going to tell you why they're there. And the why they're there is going to be very meaningful. And most people will tell you why they were there on the first walk. And one person told me why they were there on the seventh walk. And I can tell you the tree. And everything. And really interesting because we did the same walk over and over again. I could say to you, at this bush, this person told me this about their story. And at this style, somebody else said that. So, so, so that walk taught, really, really taught me that everyone has a story. And if you walk next to somebody, they will tell you if you just are open and don't endlessly talk about yourself, which is what I'm doing with you now. <laughs> That's why you're here. But it says something about the power of time, which I talk a lot about, the power of not feeling as though there's a deadline to do your thinking, including at the end of walk one, two, three or four. Yeah, and with some people who'd only intended to come for one walk and who had blisters by 10 miles and were definitely not planning to come for another one, they would often tell you their story between mile 10 and the end. And every single person who came on that walk had a reason that was a broken reason for being there because something, either something had broken for them or in them or in their family. And they wanted to be able to say that to somebody, not in a way that needed them to be fixed, but just because they wanted to share that bit of their story with somebody else. It was, a, it was, a, it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, so another title for the book that I haven't written about it. <laughs> so one is Everyone Has a Story. And another one is how to accidentally set up a community. <laughs> time, giving people time is something that we don't give. And just genuinely being open to whatever is said without trying to fix. I think people can sense if we're trying to fix. And I think if they think we're going to try and fix them, they don't speak 
Um, but this was a walk where the whole reason, so it was, we, I set it up with a friend because her husband was diagnosed with motor neurone disease. So the, so the, um, the kind of premise was that there was brokenness and lack of perfection and, and not everything was marvellous, was a kind of fundamental thing of the walk. But I think one of the things that we learned from doing that is that you can take hope from anything. And it became the most extraordinary hopeful, hopeful place. It was just, well, I mean, probably it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my whole life, more than my coaching career, because we, we made something happen by accident. <laughs> and then we got an award from the Prime Minister, <laughs> which was also kind of accidental, which was just beautiful. One of the reasons why I love podcasting, and I know you do too, is that there's no time constraint. And I remember a particular episode um, about, uh, about six months ago, and there was a moment where I asked a particular question. And the gap, which I measured afterwards, between me asking the question and the answer was something like 15 seconds, something like that. And my editor emailed me and said, do you want me to reduce the gap? And I said, really, no, because I want listeners to hear what happens when you shut up and allow the space to happen. Um, and I was in a conversation this morning with an organization who is struggling to instill any kind of, kind of coaching culture in their organization. And it's something that you either get or you don't, but a big part of it is it's a fundamentally different kind of conversation that I think sometimes you only really understand when you start to hear conversations a bit like it, that, that when you hear coaching style conversations or reflective conversations or conversations without agenda and timeline and all of that, suddenly something clicks for you, or it doesn't, but for something, sometimes something clicks for you. Um, and for some people, that's a very natural thing to do. And for some people, it's really unnatural because they've never done it. They've never been part of that kind of conversation. Yeah, and it's, it's a conversation, isn't it, where you feel seen, but also where you're willing to be seen. So I was at a party the other day, and um, in fact, it, the person I was in conversation with is the wife of the person who interviewed me to go to Kenya in 1983, which is hysterically funny because everything comes around again, doesn't it? Um, and he said to me that the, the, the guy who interviewed me in 1983, he said, he said, so how did it change you? And then somebody else asked something else. And he then came back to me, he said, you still haven't told me how it changed you. So, so we immediately then went into a really deep conversation and his wife picked up on it and I think I must have said something like, um, I don't know what I said, but it was something about being adventurous and believing that anything's possible and all that kind of stuff. And she went, have you got any friends? But she said that in an ICU way, not in a, 
I don't think you've got any friends. Because what she was actually saying was, it's a bit scary how willing you are to talk about anything <laughs> about yourself and how willing you are to be vulnerable. And I'm guessing that not everybody in your personal life wants to do that. And I think that's part of the reason I love coaching because I love being around people who are willing to go deep. But then that makes me very frustrated when I'm with people who don't, can't, aren't going to, which is why she said, have you got any friends? <laughs> which I have. <laughs> I have. Yes, but I don't always have a lot of friends in the community where I live, although I do here, actually. Um, but, but I'm a difficult friend to have because I might ask a deep question <laughs> and you might not like that. And do people say to you, don't coach me? Oh, well, I don't try and coach people ever because I've had that done to me too many times and it's really annoying. And that, that was the lesson on my last long walk, on my 600 kilometre walk. The lesson was, I can remember as we started out on day one and I realised that we were just going to, to suddenly be alongside people we didn't know and start talking. And I thought, I'm on sabbatical if this turns into a giant coaching fest, it's going to be awful. So there was a not wanting to work thing, but there was also something about I realised that if I, if I facilitated the thinking of others all the time, I would never be bringing anything of myself and therefore not processing my own stuff. So it became very mutual. In fact, I was in conversation on WhatsApp this week with with a, a young german woman who we met that first those first two or three days and we have a depth of friendship now because she told me her story and i told her mine and we don't do that in coaching except we're on when we're on the unlock moment with gary <laughs> so community is interesting tell me about moving house or moving house. So I sound like the Queen. My husband and I, we can take forever to decide what to have for dinner or to go on holiday. But sometimes we make really, really big decisions really fast. So when we moved 28 years ago, 25 years ago, he just rang me up and said, uh, I've been offered relocation, but we've got to decide today whether we're going to move from South London to Hertfordshire. And I just went, oh, say yes. <laughs> that was it. We moved. Um, for about the last seven or eight years, I have sat with Maya Angelou quote that says, you are only free when you realise you belong no place. You belong every place, no place at all. The price is high, the reward is great. And I love it. Couldn't really work out what it meant, but I also couldn't let it go. So I just sat with it. And then when COVID hit, and there were reasons where I didn't feel like I belonged where we were, and I went from the beginning stanza, you're only free when you realise that you belong no place. I'm going, yeah, absolutely, I agree. I don't belong anywhere. 
you belong every place, no place at all. And I just turned to Mike and went, doesn't matter where we live, does it? <laughs> so we decided to move like that week, put the house on the market. Here we are. And on one level, we don't belong here, but we do belong here. But I'm, I'm getting more okay with belonging no place, belonging every place. And of course, belonging on the internet <laughs> has its own. I've got it written down here. She said that in 1973. But actually, belonging every place now has a different meaning, doesn't it? Because we belong here, but we've never actually met face to face, although we are video to video. We have no, no idea how tall each other are. No, wouldn't that be funny? <laughs> I found that. I do another podcast called Coach Aaron with um, two US coaches who've never met. Um, and I found out quite recently they're both really short and I'm really quite tall. Really? I thought you were short. Oh, no, I'm tall. I'm six foot are one. Are you? I'm on, a, I'm on a low chair. Really? Yeah. How tall do you think I was? About five foot nine. <laughs> Brilliant. Belonging is really interesting um, because one of the ways belonging is used now is to help move pe people move away from the idea that diversity is the goal and into if people feel like they belong however they feel they belong, then that is, that's the outcome we're all looking for. So when, when you think about belonging for you, what kind of things make you feel like you belong? Well, yeah, but it makes me, uh, yeah. That's a big question. So I'm a bit of an edge walker. In this conversation that, where I felt seen at this, this party the other day, she said to me, she said, are you an edge walker? You can see my soul. <laughs> And she quoted something from Richard Rohr, and she said that Richard Rohr says that if you are an edge walker, the place that edge walkers belong is on the inside of the, out, of the edge, just on the inside of the edge. So, so belonging is interesting because in order to be able to be on the inside of the edge, you need to know where the edge is. So it made me think about my life in the coaching world where I've always felt a little bit on the edge because because what I think about it is a bit radically different and I'm singing a different song about coaching. And having other people go, you're right, has been quite a surprise to me. <laughs> quite a, well, you know, when you think you're right, it's nice when people go, I agree with you, but it's also a bit Surprising that you suddenly then become a bit more mainstream than you thought you were going to be. I can't, what was the question you asked that <laughs> took me away down there? Belonging. So part of me really, really wants to belong and part of me really, really doesn't want to belong. And actually, I think that's part of the reason. Actually, now I'm saying that to you. I think there's a deep desire in me that I actually do want to belong everywhere and nowhere. You're a good coach, aren't you, Gary? 
Tell me about the concept behind the human behind the coach. Where were you when, when you were like, this is the book that we need to write? So I was working with Lucia and uh, we were starting talking about the shift that you need to make from begin, be, being a technically, a, a coach with really good technical skill to being a really outstanding coach. And suddenly realised that it wasn't about technical skill at all, that that shift wasn't about technical skill at all. So we actually started writing another book. So we started writing Growing Into Mastery, and it was all based on the technical development from one level to the next. But actually, (laughs) it's about humanity. It's about how human am I able to be in the room? So, So the difference between the coach that you described earlier who's just come out of coach training school and thinks that they need to be able to do things and therefore has imposter syndrome because they can't the difference between them and me is that i know i can't i know i don't know how to do it and i'm really okay with that <laughs> and i know that i'm not in control and i'm really okay with that but it's also not out of control and And I know that this isn't about me adding lots of value so that you think I'm really good at my job. I know actually this is about holding a space for somebody to do some good generative work. And I'm okay with that. And all of those things are about the human. It's about the internal holding of ourselves. And in Simplifying Coaching, I started writing about power. And I've been thinking about power for a long time, partly because I'm, power is one of my button pushes. (laughs) And I think that the, the development from that then started Lucia and I in dialogue, really thinking about humility. And there's quite a lot in the human behind the coach about ego. Because if I think that I've made somebody have an amazing revelation, well, I haven't. I said something that might have given them an insight that's changed everything. You've said a few things in this conversation that have made me have an insight, but then you didn't prepare them. You didn't go, I'm going to make Claire have an insight at the unlock moment. And I'm going to, and I have it written down a list of give Claire an insight points and let me put one in. You've just randomly said random things in response to what, well, I mean, lovely random things, but in response to what I've said, and then that's bounced me into something else. Someone told me to do that, by the way. (laughs) Ah, did they? (laughs) (laughs) There's another book, isn't there, about bouncing off. How do we bounce off things and build on? But I can't write every book that's in my head. I am aware about that. Um. How did we get there? Uh, humanity and humility and ego. Yes. Yeah, so cute. Yeah, and it's, it's just about, it's about being normal. You know, when we use all this crazy language, I, I was working w- with some coaches the other day and they said, do you not ask about limiting beliefs? And I go, no, 
because limiting beliefs is jargon. If I'm working with somebody and we keep falling over something, then I might go, feels like we keep falling over this. What do we need to do about it? But I don't say, oh, you have a limiting belief because that makes you think that I'm the expert in your life and I'm not. I'm just noticing we keep falling over this thing. So what are we going to do about the thing we keep falling over? But the great thing about humanity is you don't need to remember anything. In the coaching conversation, you just need to go with the flow and support the person to do some good thinking, which, of course, makes you massively more present. So I am a little bit gutted because the manuscript is gone. And then a lovely coach the other day um, said to me, she said, what you're really talking about is absolutely buckets full of presents and knowing when to step in. I thought, oh, that should have been the book. So good. (laughs) But that's what it's all about. It's not about secret weapons or magical things or 10,000 books that I've read that's made me a guru and a knowledgeable whatever, whatever. It's about emptying my head and being fully there for somebody else. So our hope for the book, for the human behind the coach, is that it gives people permission to just lighten up a bit. And the thing that I'm reflecting on when you say that is that everything you've just talked about in the context of coaching and a coach and the way a coach would be in a coaching conversation is also true much more broadly and generally for leaders being leaders in a leadership conversation. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's the same thing when leaders sit there and they say, I'm supposed to run this conversation this kind of way. I'm supposed to manage my team in this way. And you see the best leaders, they're the same. They lean into their natural selves. They're humble. They let go of ego. They ask people what they want, what they need. It's, a, it's, a, it's so, it feels, and I think people listening to this conversation will feel the depth, the resonance of a conversation feeling quite profound, feeling quite thought-changing. I think that people will hear this and they will hear how it is different. And I wanted to hear how it's not different, better, different, harder, different, more complex, different, more advanced. It's actually different, simpler, different, less. That's the thing. That's the thing. You know, great leaders make the tea. Great leaders open doors for people. You know, they, they're kind. They're, they're normal. They're human. They don't look like leaders. They, they, you know, they do sometimes. Of course they do. But actually they just do normal things. They remember it's your birthday. They ask you, how's your cat? I was always terrible at remembering people's birthdays, but I tried really hard. I just failed, but, but I did. I tried really hard. <laughs> I started to employ people to help remind me when I needed to know those things. Um, one of the things, one of the conversations we sometimes have about coaching is around the idea of coaching and, and dance, um, which what's the connection between coaching and dance for you? How do you think about that? 
Well, I also now realise I never passed the dance chapter in The Human Behind the Coach past you, Gary, for dance checking. I'm looking forward to read it. But you are quoted. I think the thing that makes coaching work really effectively is partnership. And the thing that makes partnership work is when we stay in partnership through the whole thing. So if you watch dancers dancing, they're in partnership for the entire engagement, aren't they? And actually, if you watch coaches in partnership with thinkers, they might start in partnership, but often there's a moment when they split, when they never quite get back together again. So, so there's an amazing um, TED talk on YouTube by Jeff Cop and somebody else, and it's called Liquid Leadership, and it's and they're dancers, and they they talk about leadership and partnership at the same time as demonstrating dancing where there's neither leader or nor follower. So they're flipping over the leader and the follower as they're doing the dance, and that's what great coaching is. We're flipping over who leads and who follows. But when you come out of coaching school with a thousand wonderful toys, you lead. Either you're following until you can use your toy or or you're leading and going, this toy is a really great one. But what that means is, if you think about dancing, I think, is that instead of of saying, "What what do we need to do here? They start doing the tango. And you start doing the Charleston. And and then you're looking at them and go, well, are you not going to do the Charleston with me? Because this is a very good thing. I'm doing the Charleston over here. Come and do the Charleston. But they're doing their own or they're doing their freeform dance. We need to go with them and we need to do what they need to do, not what is our preference. Um. But there are a thousand reasons why I think coaching and dancing are similar. And that's why there's a whole chapter in the book on the dance of coaching, which I'm a bit gutted about because I think that could have been a whole book. But maybe you can write that. Our next collaboration. Um, You're making me think of one of the most profound moments in my dance career was actually about leading and following. Uh, And it was a workshop that my wife and I were at with some people that were not our regular coaches. So there's kind of three levels of leading and following in, in warm Latin American dance. Level one is we're all doing the same steps. We're in front of the mirror and everybody's copying. It's the kind of thing that if you see people dancing on stage, they're not really actually dancing in unison. They've just all learned the same steps and they do it at the same time with the same beat in the music. So it's a kind of painting by numbers kind of exercise. The second starts to get into true leading and following where there is a point of physical connection. So actually, if you're a ballroom dancing couple, there are five physical points of connection um, in the body. Whenever you're, you're moving, it's your hands and uh, your uh, wrists and your body and your legs are all in contact. And that um, communicates information that enables you to coordinate the action that you take. And then we went to a workshop with um, these brilliant Italian professional competitors and, 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 and later coaches called William Pino and Alessandro Bucciarelli, who are renowned for being some of the most artistically brilliant dancers of, of the last 30 years. And they said, do that, but without the physical contact. And so you would, they, they stood all the men in a line, all the women in, in another line opposite them. 
And they said, the men are going to start moving forward. And as the men start to move forward, the women are going to see that and are going to move backwards. So they're doing different steps, doing different directions. And there was a lag because the men started to move, the women saw it, and then they started to move. And then they said, now remove the lag. So as the man moves, the woman simultaneously must move, but there is no physical contact between you. And it created such a profound, what I can really describe as an emotional connection between the two people that you were watching each other very intently, not for the movement, because if you wait for the movement, you're late, but actually something about you had to create a unison of movement, but just without the physical information. And that makes me think, I was thinking about that when you were describing, and I think that's the essence of a great coaching conversation. You're just present in the moment in that very fundamental way, not in a kind of, you say a thing, I process that you said it, I think of a clever thing to say back and I say it back and then you go, oh, that's interesting, let me think about that question. It's much more like that the conversation is in unison, but there's no physical connection, which is why coaching works really well across Zoom as well as, well as in, in the room. And I'm guessing that it's eye contact that allowed you to do that exercise. Well, it could be. And I bet that they would then say, now close your eyes and do the same thing. You know? Yes. Um, yeah. And that was the thing. You have to get to a place where you can't actually figure out how it's happening. But it happens. We do an exercise like that in our improv training where we're trying to train coach. We're not. We're training coaches to have better presence. And that's one of the exercises is to seamlessly partner like that. And it's just, just making me think, you know, partnership is more important than anything else. Because if we're not in partnership, we're not working together. And actually this comes when we're working together. The, the, the unlock moment comes when we're working in partnership together in service of your thinking, doesn't it? And suddenly, because the unlock moment can only come from you, can't come from me. We have quoted your unlock moment, post-it moment in our book, Gary. And it was a very, it was a gift, that podcast you did about your post-it note, because for me, it suddenly made me realise that there is a huge connection between courage and insight. So it's, in, you know, insight, courage, insight. They're, they are inextricably connected. But unless we're willing to demonstrate courage, the thinker demonstrates one level of courage, but the coach demonstrates another level of courage because we don't know what we're doing. That's courage, right? So interesting. If people have enjoyed this conversation and they want to find out more about the work you do and connect in with you, how can they do that? Uh, the website is www.3dcoaching.com and I'm on LinkedIn. And your podcast? Oh, my podcast. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. The Coaching In podcast on all major podcast platforms. And one of my favourite things about the Coaching In podcast is your little blog articles, which taught me something about being able to say something useful in about 90 seconds. I really like those little ones. Have you noticed they're getting shorter because I've just read Smart Brevity? 
that is the thing about simplifying coaching. It is a, it's a brilliant and thin book, uh, which I know a lot of people value. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-renowned coach and author Claire Pedrick, it was recognizing that the kind of conversation that came most naturally to her actually had a name and a job attached, and that set her on a path to build her life around coaching. Do go and pre-order a copy of Claire's fantastic new book, The Human Behind the Coach, How Great Coaches Transform Themselves First, available on Amazon and all good bookstores. As we come to the conclusion of this episode, I want to steal shamelessly from Claire's book, Simplifying Coaching, where she quoted T.S. Eliot, to make an end is to make a beginning. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Claire, as ever, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Well, thank you for having me. It's been amazing. And you're six foot one. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.